right. Hello. Well. Hello. Welcome to Data Science Deployed, where we talk about deploying data science. Uh, I'm co-host Donnie. I'm Jillian. And I'm Ben. And today we are interviewing Ben. We're continuing our, our round robin of the co-hosts. Um, and yeah, so uh, Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into your, your, your shared resources about best practices for building machine learning pipelines and, and, and yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, Donnie. Um, so for the last several years, I've been at, at Huddle, which is a sports software company uh, based in the Midwest, United States. And um, I've been leading the applied machine learning team. And, and really, we've been uh, trying to figure out how to uh, use machine learning to make Huddle software more intelligent. So Huddle's all about sports video. So we take that video in and we want to understand aspects of what's going on on the on the soccer pitch or on the football field um, and we then we want to use that to break down games faster to send stats to coaches or we want to use it to power a smart camera that hangs on the wall uh, all kinds of stuff but it, it really hinges on understanding the video that that huddle ingests um, so we, we've been working really hard on uh, computer vision based machine learning problems for for really since uh 2015 or 2016 um, and sort of through that process learned a lot about what not to do and, and a few things about, about what to do. So um, my my big my big open question is sort of is is there a way to do machine learning development that is efficient and sort of maximizes your chance of success, especially in a, uh, a sort of customer setting sort of when, when the goal is to build a production system that users are going to hit, um, you know, at scale. Wow, great. Um, so you mentioned the, the word uh, production, like, like, tell me a little bit like what 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 production, you know, looks like for you. I mean, I, I, I sort of envision it's, it's like a game or something. But yeah, what is what is what is, what's development versus production? For yeah, you? That's, yeah, I think that's a good question. I think I think this this is very use case specific. I think when you're doing research, production looks like something very different. Uh, you know, if the if the outcome is an analysis, your needs are very different than if the outcome is uh, a hosted system. But but for us at Huddle, it was really um, we needed it to run at scale. So you know, Huddle ingests thousands of videos every day, um, and we needed it to be efficient. We needed it to have very low error rates. Um, so I, I really think about it as the system is running automatically with no human intervention and it's, it's running reliably. Um, and so that, that was the goal for us. And, and we definitely had some wins and, and losses as we were sort of getting good at doing that. But, um, but yeah, it was just like running at scale and, and serving customer needs is, is sort of like what it looked like for us. And, and that's, that's where I think the, the problems get pretty interesting because, um, generally writing software for customers is hard because you, you have to solve two problems. You have to uh, solve a technical problem, which is you have to build the system, but you also have to solve a people problem, which is kind of finding market fit. You can't just build the thing you think customers should like. You have to build the thing customers actually do like. And without either one of those solutions, the, the application is going to fail. 
Um, and, and even though that's hard in general, there is a set of best practices that dramatically improve your chance of success in, in software development. You've got sort of agile development processes and testing standards and version control. I think when you, when you add machine learning to the mix, you actually increase the technical uncertainty, but also importantly, I think there's not really a set of best practices that are widely agreed upon across industry. Um, and that definitely makes it harder. It sort of lowers your chance of success. So um, basically my thesis is there is a set of best practices and you sort of like figure out what they are and, and make machine learning development more efficient, especially for those those sort of like customer centric use cases. I think, you know, if, if your goal is to do analysis, then a lot of the things that I care about when I'm building an application don't matter. So um, you don't necessarily need to write your model in an IDE or uh, you don't necessarily need to version your data set in the same way. I, I, I don't know, like some of the some of the things may apply equally, but um, but definitely specifically what I'm talking about is like, how do you build a good machine learning application? Cool. So I don't understand like anything about sports, like, like nothing whatsoever, <laughs> uh, except I'm from New England. So I like to go to hockey games and drink and yell at the players. But beyond <laughs> that, so what kind of things do you actually want to predict in sports? Yeah. So. Um, Basically, what we wanted to do was understand what's going on in the field. So we'd start with player tracking, um, sort of where are all the players on the basketball court or on the soccer field. And then we'd add things about the individual players. So what, what jersey number are they wearing? Uh, do they have the ball right now? Uh, are they running or standing still? Uh, and, then, and then you could start, imagine sort of like building up higher higher levels of of sort of information on top of that. So, uh, you know, which team has possession and which direction is the is the flow of the game going and um, what action is taking place right now. Um, and so really we were kind of building up those, those sort of like primitives, those levels, uh, but targeting specific applications that would, would help Huddle's business. Um, one of those applications is, is called Huddle Assist and Huddle Assist is a service where a, a uh, especially a high school coach is where it's the most common, will uh, upload their video to huddle.com and then that will get broken down. So we'll, we'll tag all the shots, all the turnovers, all the, the fouls, um, and then send them a, a sort of summary of the game, uh, sort of what was your shooting percentage from different locations on the court and, um, you know, who had the most fouls, who, who, was, who was successful in this game. And that's, that's really useful to coaches. They use that to um, watch video, kind of study video, uh, find the interesting moments. They also use the stats to help coach their team, help, help them improve. Um, the, but importantly, that, that process has been almost entirely manual. So um, that, that's sort of good and bad. The, the good thing about that from a machine learning perspective is you've got a sort of proven product market fit. We, you know, we were already successful as a company at, at selling this service that was highly manual. And so we could go in and, and really focus on the technical problem. How do we make this dramatically more efficient with machine learning? Um, but then that did uncover all these problems of uh, how, how do you manage data sets? You know, we, we've got tons and tons of video and we're, we're constantly annotating these videos, but you'll train a model and then you'll find, oh, well, 5% of them were actually labeled incorrectly, or um, these are really not an angle we want to support. And um, so we'd want to update that data set, but we, we also wanted to be able to go backwards in time and say, okay, here's a model we know is getting 
93% accuracy. Now we're only getting 87% accuracy. Like, let's rewind and try to figure out what's the difference, like what actually happened. To do that, you have to be able to version your data set. Um, again, something we just kind of learned the hard way. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit about what we were doing. Uh, in, in the in the later couple of years, we were really focused on uh, building solutions for our smart camera, which is called Huddle Focus. And Huddle Focus is pretty cool. You, you hang a camera on the wall. It's got four individual sensors. And instead of having a camera operator going back and forth with an iPad or a, a handy cam, this camera actually just follows the action automatically and uploads your video directly to Huddle. And um, as you can imagine, machine learning is helpful there. You can make the camera smarter, make it better at following the action, um, add more automation, like knowing when a, a football play starts and stops. Uh, so we spent a lot of time kind of thinking about those those types of use cases and and in that case production is not a system running in the cloud it's actually you've got a model file and you ship it to the camera it's running directly on the camera uh, so that that adds another set of challenges with monitoring and mm. what happens when you get an error all kinds of things that is so neat i think all the iot stuff is like it's really interesting especially since i don't work in it but i just i find it fascinating that you can just have you know this little device that um, you know, can do all these do all these cool things that you couldn't have accomplished with like a big supercomputer. You know, even like 10 or 15 years ago, I think you know, even a lot of the there's getting to be a lot of medical devices and I guess a lot of smart camera devices and drones and yeah, it's neat. Yeah, I agree. It's it's really fun, and it's it's crazy how fast things are moving. Cool. Uh, so Ben, I was looking over your your eight best practices for building machine learning pipelines. A lot of them looked pretty familiar with to me in, with regard to software development in general. Yep. Um, write code in ID, uh, use Git workflow for version control, unify your dev and production environments, run uh, automatic tests, um, make things into packages, and, and do documentation. The last two are particularly interesting to me and seemed seemed important for for machine learning and data. And so I'm I'm just wondering how you tackled these problems. Uh, versioning snapshots of data sets and tracking experiments, and and just just tell me a little bit about you know the 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 pains that, that went into that and, yeah. and 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 what 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 has emerged at a high level of of how to tackle that sort of thing. Yeah, great question. Um, I guess one thing I'll just say is is I've I've got sort of listed eight best practices. I don't think eight is a magic number by any means. I don't think these are written on stone tablets. I think. Uh, this is sort of me trying to wrestle with these ideas and figure out, you know, what are the the common patterns here when it goes well. Um, but but that said, I think basically machine learning engineering is a superset of software engineering. So so then you shouldn't be surprised that a lot of sort of best practices for software development are included in kind of best practices for machine learning engineering. You 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 do have to write code. You have to write it efficiently. You want that to be tested and predictable and and all these things. Um, I, I think, as you say, there are a couple that are unique to machine learning. Um, and the two most obvious ones to me are versioning data sets and tracking experiments. And um, I think both of those really um, come down to reproducibility. I think if you're, you know, in a, in a lab, you're sort of documenting everything in a notebook and uh, carefully managing every sort of input to your experiment. Uh, I think I think the same thing basically should apply in a, in a production machine learning setting, and and the goal is a little bit different. It's it's not so that you can publish a paper that other scientists can reproduce, but um, but it is important for 
just building a predictable system for sort of understanding what you've what you've got uh, sort of like not treating your machine learning model as a black box that you can't uh, you can't reproduce at any time um, I think there are, there are good tools, I think, in, in both of these cases for, for data sets and tracking experiments. And the the sort of like ML ops space is definitely exploding right now. Um, for for versioning data sets, I've, I've experimented with both um, a, a tool called Quilt and also a tool called DVC. Um, I'm more excited about DVC. So I guess full disclosure, I'll be working uh, at the end of this month, I'll be joining a company called Iterative which builds an open source tool called DVC data version control. And, and the idea is versioning your data set in a, in a workflow that's very tied into Git. So you've got a little uh, command line interface and you can uh, version snapshots. If you take an image or a record in or out, um, it'll update the, the hash and then you can you know, push the data set to your remote storage, but you've got a pointer that's actually in Git. Um, so you, you really can sort of make any arbitrary change to your data set and you can always go backwards and it's, it's tied to your Git commit. Um, I think that's just really critical for being able to reproduce your entire sort of like experiment pipeline, your, your training algorithm, whatever. Um, and then the other piece of it is, is tracking experiments. And the most common approach I see to this is actually with a, a database. So like MLflow or um, there's some, some new proprietary systems like uh, weights and biases. Um, and, this is, I think, one, it's important for reproducibility, but also this does allow you to um, run more like hyperparameter optimization. So, so kind of search over the space of learning rates or uh, batch sizes and then figure out what, what actually works best in, in practice. Um, if, if you don't track those experiments, it becomes very, very difficult to say, like, what actually went into building this model and can I tweak it? Can I, can I like go back to it? Um, so yeah, I think I think those two things are are really important. They're specific to machine learning, and I don't think they're totally solved yet. And sort of like what's what's the sort of like correct approach? Like what's what's the most standard approach here? Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. That, that's that's it's very cool. Um, yeah, I'm I'm wondering. I mean, I'm curious a bit a bit about you, you know your best practices for for like designing these experiments and 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 and, and you know I, I imagine a naive approach would be kind of a, a grid search of all the various parameters you think you have. I know people do more sophisticated things where they they they, they trade off exploration versus ex, exploitation, yep. so called. And I'm wondering sort of what you've seen um, that like has has worked in in practice for your stuff. In particular, I'm not familiar at all with like with video data sets and and kind of you know what what kind of things work work well for that and what kind of infrastructure is needed and what what are the the algorithms that are that are in vogue or that, that you found to be helpful and intuitive or, or useful um, for that sort of thing to actually design these experiments and, and execute them yeah that's, that's a great question probably a lot to unpack there um the i guess i'll start with just talking a little bit about the the sort of a computer vision set of problems um the i'd say it is fairly widely agreed upon that the the sort of like most effective approach in computer vision right now and maybe this is changing a little bit but i think it's still generally true that that you'll start with a convolutional neural network um and you know this this was pioneered with the ImageNet data sets in like 2012 or so 
And it started with image classification, but has sort of expanded into all kinds of other problems you can solve, like object detection, you know, put a bounding box around the objects in the image, segmentation. So can you actually find the pixels that are included in each object? Um, but they all start with this convolutional stack, this sort of like deep stack of layers that are really just pulling features out of the the, the pixels of, of the image. Um, the I think this has been a, a, a pretty huge breakthrough. It's like empowered a lot of different applications with computer vision, uh, but it is also fairly computationally intensive to, especially to train the model, but really at, at inference time as well. Um, so you you need lots of, Lots of data, I think, on the order of thousands of images to, to train these things well. I think, obviously, that that depends. There's, there's like all kinds of rules of thumb, and it's hard to, to give a set, like, here's how big your data set needs to be. But but the, the point is, uh, that's not something you can run on your laptop in five minutes. It's it's really, uh, you need GPUs, basically, to to do um, gradient descent and and learn these uh, the weights of the, the models. And you need fairly high throughput of sort of reading these images off of disk or off of over the network, getting them sort of like packaged it up into batches and then sending them to the GPU. Um, so I think uh, for that reason, I think using the cloud is, is very um, beneficial there because you don't, you know, if you've got a team of, of machine learning engineers, you don't want them waiting for someone else's experiment to finish. It's like the, the salary of your team is, is your most, most uh, your highest expense by far so so don't don't make compute the bottleneck so like let them expand horizontally uh in the cloud um and then i think inference is another set of problems especially on video because you um you want to do that as efficiently as possible and the network a lot of times becomes the bottleneck um there is you know if you decode the video so so the the video will come in encoded where not each pixel is a number it's like you've got some number of, of pixels and then, and then some like, um, some like guesswork essentially about around the neighboring pixels and that's to save space. Um, but then you need to convert that into an actual number for each pixel. And if you do that on the CPU, then you have to pass a bunch of data down to the GPU and that even just going from the CPU to the GPU can be very expensive and slow. Um, so there's a lot of like interesting design decisions and, and, tooling developing around how, how to make that compute more efficient. Um, yeah, that, that's the computer vision part. I forgot what the second part of your question was. I thought it was a good one, but um, yeah, it definitely the, the computers is, is an interesting part of the problem there. And I think um, I know that's, that's true for other areas as well. I think natural language processing, my understanding is the models themselves get very big. Um, so I think you've got a, a different set of challenges around how do you, how do you deploy that? How do you train that? Um, yeah. I want to know what kind of tech stack you're using. I mean, we're talking, don't let the computer be the <laughs> bottleneck. So yeah. how are yeah. we doing that? Yeah, I think cloud is, is really critical. And at, at Huddle, we used AWS. Um, and we, we use Python for um, developing the models. Um, and then we originally, our inference system was built in Python as well. So we would decode the video. Um, and then pass, pass those pixels to a, a GPU model that was sort of wrapped in Python, PyTorch or TensorFlow. Um, eventually what we moved to, NVIDIA's got a, an SDK called uh, DeepStream and, and DeepStream basically allows you to define the processing DAG 
and then it will manage the whole thing for you. So importantly, it can decode the video on the GPU, keep those pixels on the GPU and pass it directly to the model. And, and that just makes things dramatically faster and more efficient. Um, uh, and that, that's important if you want to run on the, the device, but it's also, it turns out to be really helpful in the cloud as well. Um, yeah, a, a lot of the a lot of the tooling we actually developed in house. So um, the way we sort of labeled images was a just a React UI that we put together to to service mm -hmm. our own needs. I think um, I think the ecosystem has developed a lot since we started working on these problems. And uh, I'm not sure today that you would necessarily build that yourself. You you might prefer to just buy something off the shelf, but. Um, yeah, as we were sort of figuring this out in 2015, 2016, the, the most efficient thing we could do is kind of write our own. Um, we use a tool called Quilt3 for versioning data sets. Um, that doesn't seem to be getting a ton of, of active development now, so I, I'm not sure that that would be the right call. Um, but it, it still got, gets the job done. Um, we made heavy use of Docker containers. Um, and that's really about sort of like making sure the development environment matches as closely as possible to the production environment. Um, yeah, I love VS Code for, for development. I think um, having an open source IDE is, is really, really amazing for developing the ecosystem and, and all kinds of tools are getting built to make machine learning development easier, even though that's not necessarily their stated goal. Um, one of the things you can do in VS Code, which is really cool is you can um, you can run your your code environment in a Docker container, and the host does not have to be your your local machine. So I can have a, a GPU desktop in my office, and I can open up my you know it's a headless machine, basically just acts like a server. Open up VS Code. I've got a Docker container running on my desktop, but the, the code window is here. I can run my debugger and everything on, on my local environment. Um, like the debugger is running on the desktop, but I've got the code, like access to the code in, in the local machine. And um, that that then gives you access to sort of powerful compute without actually having to run Ubuntu as your main main distribution. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's a handful of tools we, we use. I think uh, more generally, the, the process was sort of ever evolving because we, we realized quickly that the the tooling is an important part of the problem. So I was just like, I guess a quick story about my time at Huddle. Um, we, in, in 2016, we started building a player tracking system for um, football, for global football, which is soccer. Um, and we, we knew that there was already a market for this problem. Other companies were out there selling, um, selling this positional data to soccer clubs. So they would, mostly they would set up a bunch of cameras around the soccer pitch. They would, um, track everything in on multiple cameras, sort of merge that together and then sell it to uh, teams, sell it to the media. Um, and sort of like analytics was, was starting to take off on that. Um, so so we basically we knew there was a way to sell this data if we could generate it. Uh, so we, we built a system to generate it. That's important. Like, yeah, that's yeah exactly. Again, again, <laughs> so solving, solving one of those problems of like, will customers actually use this? Um, so yeah. That, that, yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we built this system and, you know, as you might expect, the, the algorithm was not perfect. It was maybe sort of 85% accurate, depending on, on how you sort of define accurate in, in the player tracking um, space. Um, so 
you know, that, that was not good enough to sell directly to customers, so we, we need to correct it. So then we'd have uh, a user interface and a, a person go through and, and correct all this data. And it was, it was just painfully slow. We, we sort of were able to break up the job and split it between multiple people, but it was, it was very, very slow and therefore very expensive to generate this data. Um, and more and more customers were demanding it in, in sort of close to real time. Um, you know, our, our approach was, was sort of cheaper on the, on the hardware side. So you, you wouldn't necessarily need an array of cameras. You could, you could do it with a single camera, but, uh, the downside is then, then it's like expensive to actually turn that into data that you can use for, for analytics. Um, and so the, the sort of like business question that came to the team was, can we do this in real time? Like we, we need this to go a lot faster. Uh, so we, we put our heads together with this, this ended up being a pretty massive effort on the algorithm side. We, we knew we needed to improve the accuracy. We needed to kind of change the error space. So instead of, um, instead of a certain class of errors that requires a certain type of intervention to correct, we knew if we could, if we could sort of change how the errors come in, that would allow humans to be, be more efficient at, at correcting it. Um, and we spent, spent a bunch of time, maybe a year or more getting this algorithm to, to the point where we were pretty sure we could do it in real time. And by the time the algorithm was ready, we had a little bit more work to do on the, on the sort of user interface, the rest of the, the system and the business had moved on. So decided like, ah, this is not a high enough margin business for us to be in. We're, we're going to not really prioritize this, this anymore. And I think, um, the, like, obviously that, that hurts. Like you, you like spent a whole year, like really working hard on this, uh, you know, pouring Ooh. yourself into this algorithm. Um, so fast forward to, to 2020 or so, we were working on a problem in American football business came and said, Hey, like, this is pretty cool. But if you change it slightly, I think we could use this able to pivot quickly, get this thing into production. The whole thing took about two or three months, uh, from start to finish. And, and all of a sudden now we were successful because we could sort of meet the business where it was at. Um, and, and really the biggest difference was our, our sort of process and our tooling. So we had really invested in. What's, what's the right way to do this? We've gotten good at, at going through these reps and all of a sudden we could turn things around much quicker and that maximized chance of success. So this sort of like, that experience is really why I'm kind of obsessed with like, how, how do you do this efficiently? What's, what's the sort of like right way, you know, trademark um, to, to build machine learning applications? Yeah, time is money. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it made a big difference to be able to, to do something in two months versus a year um in that, in that particular thing wow um that's that's great uh one thing i wanted to touch on it seemed like a particular interest uh, of, of yours that, that you, you submitted a, a a thing about source code layout for machine learning pipelines yeah. um i'm interested in, in in your thoughts i want i want to you know you know, not hold back yeah your, okay your, your opinions yeah. And, and like why it's so it's so important and worth worth really writing about and 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 that, you know, you're soapboxing about. And yeah. Just, yeah, just give it to us. It's definitely soapboxing. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think I think this is one of those that's that's definitely not a settled question. But I I think sort of the correct way, if you will, to uh, build a machine learning uh, system is to do it as a Python package. So um, basically, that gives you a few a few benefits. One you you can easily set up a standard layout i think i think that's not necessarily specific to a python package but i think the python package encourages you to use a, a sort of standard layout um it, it also makes the model itself composable and it allows you to very easily set up a, a command line interface for running 
running your your sort of scripts or your processes. So one of the things as as you're building a, a model, as you're updating it, especially if that model is complex and stacked with other models, um, there are a lot of a lot of scripts essentially that need to run, and it's it's very easy to let them become sort of messy and undocumented and unstandard, sort of like uh, yeah, just just not conform to to good development practices. Um, but Python makes it very easy to turn your package into a CLI and just expose expose a command line interface. Um, and all of a sudden, then you can have a sort of single location where all of your scripts are well defined. The, the arguments are sort of documented by default if you use doc strings correctly. Um, you've got a good way to run unit tests. Um, and and yeah, then when, when you've got a model that's trained, you can sort of... Uh, import model from uh, package and and start running it right away. It's, it's very easy for a newcomer to come in and, and figure out how to how to get the model going. And um, the part, partly my, my sort of thinking there was based on my experience of, of using other open source models. And I think I think the machine learning community has been great about open sourcing a lot of their work. You know, not perfect, obviously, but I think really it's, it's amazing the kinds of things that have been enabled by people just publishing their code online after they write a paper. Um, but inevitably, you go into one of those repos and everything is messy and, and not well documented. And, and it's it can take you a long time to just download the repo and figure out how to do a quick start. Um, so I think that's, that's another advantage I see of a standardized source code layout Python package is um, you know, make it as easy as possible for your new developers. If, if you've got a big team, inevitably you're going to have people coming on that are new. Uh, make it as easy for them to, to transition between model projects as possible. Um, and then I think there, there are even sort of maybe more controversial things within within my recommendation to, to make it a Python package. Um, I like config files to be actually Python classes. Um, the you know, it, it's very common to have big YAML files or JSONs, and I, I don't, I don't mind having having text files as, as configs, but I think they should be imported in a Python class that you then use throughout the project. Um, I think that that allows you to use typing for your configs, so tab complete. You also, I don't think you want to have default values scattered throughout the entire project. I think if you have a, a Python class for your config, you can sort of put your default values as attributes in the in the config and then use that everywhere. Um, so then if I'm if I'm sort of messing with the model, I don't have to say, now what, what was the learning rate defaulting to? Or where was that defined? And, and dig through a bunch of different source files. I know exactly where to go every single time. Um, I think a similar thing could be could be said for, basically my, my sort of preferred approach is you've got config.py, model.py, train.py, dataset.py. And, and then when you wanna know sort of like, how is the dataset imported from disk? You know exactly. You go to dataset.py, and there it is. Um, so, yeah, I think the, all of those things. I think basically this is one where there's there's multiple good ways to do this. But I think the more consistent you are, the better. And and I personally really like a, a Python package with well-defined modules. Do you have like your own uh, cookie cutter modules or anything? I like uh, so I actually I have a um, a template repository in GitHub that I send out to my email list. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't develop it as actively as I would like to, but that that's sort of like, uh, this is all kind of a work in progress, I guess I would say. I, I'm, I'm working to sort of make my opinion uh, more concrete 
And then I would like to encode that in a, a template or a cookie cutter that I can share with, with whomever. Um, yeah, so I guess, I guess uh, that's still to do, but, but yeah, I think, I think that is useful to then, you know, with a button click or with a, a quick command line call, you can start up a new project and get going right away. Yeah, I think I like it when um, projects like this have a cookie cutter because I can just go and grab it and totally. Yeah, and move on. Yeah, I agree. Are there make files though? Because you guys know how I feel about make files. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think I think you could easily add a make file. I, I use uh, I think I think the latest one I've I've used is a main.py, so it's everything is a Python command. But um, that that does start to break down if if what you're doing is is running a command in AWS and you want to use the AWS CLI. Uh, maybe the better sort of entry point is a make file. Maybe I'll take pull requests. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Yeah. We're not doing this now, but we accept pull requests. Yeah, exactly. I take those challenges very personally, by the way. Yeah. Like a lot of projects I've contributed to have just been like, no, why don't you do it? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. well, now I have to. I guess I will, yeah. Ben, I, 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 uh, Definitely understand your uh, your your config is code thing. I've definitely encountered that a lot. And like other projects, like I know, um, you know, the popular Python web framework Django has like a, a settings.py, and they're yeah, like, you know, let, let, let's have configuration as code because you know otherwise it gets very long, and we, we sort of need a little bit of power in our configuration. So we, we want a programming language, and that's sort of a trade off. But definitely see that. And I definitely agree with you about you know there's. There's open, and there's there's it's sort of up on GitHub, and, but then there's open, and then going to reproducible. Like, can I actually like get <laughs> yeah. to get this going? Yep. And then and then even beyond that is is um, sustainability. Mm -hmm. So even if you can reproduce it, can can people yep. like, you know, extend it and know where things go? And I think you know I think that's where you're going with the file structure. Like, oh, here totally. here's where I go yep. to do my pre-processing. So that's great. Um, another question I, I, I had this this goes back to some of your, your best practices, uh, your wording of it. One of them was to unify dev and production environments, and that got me thinking about you know, with, with this this podcast, you know, the title is data science deployed, and it seems like maybe in some cases, you know, there's there's an urge towards not really even deploying, like 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 your development, like it's sort of already like you, you can kind of deploy right away. You, you have this 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 sync between your development environment and the actual deployed environment, and you mentioned you kind of. Are working on your laptop, but you're not really. You're working on like a, a GPU yeah, thing yeah. remotely. So, like, yeah. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Of kind of like the the closing gap between development and, and deploying and that sort of thing, and 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 how you reconcile that, and what kind of infrastructure is needed to support yeah. that, and what kind of you know people and services can support that kind of unification better. Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, I think Docker is really the the sort of like game changing technology there. Um, uh, I read an interesting article this week about why the Docker business failed, and I think that's a whole interesting sort of set of uh, set of problems. But I think the the technology itself is just it's it's really game changing, and I think um, it does allow you to run something on your local machine that is extremely close to what's going to run in, in production. I think where it, where it gets a little bit tricky in machine learning is if you need a GPU, you don't necessarily have access to that mm -hmm. GPU on on your machine, but but you can get very close and. Um, so then therefore you should like, uh, you, you don't want some underlying requirement to be different in development and production and, and potentially affect your, your result in a surprising way. Um, so, so yeah, I think like write your code in a Docker container, 
Um, and then I think I think cloud is also very important, especially for a certain sort of class of machine learning applications. Um, and and again, Docker helps you here. It, like if you've got it tied into your CI CD system, you can just build build the container automatically when you push your code, and then have that pushed to a, a Docker repository. And you know, AWS has ECR, Azure, and, and GCP both have have similar services. Um, and then from there, I think you you really like sky's the limit. You've got a lot of different good options. I think Kubernetes is obviously very popular. As a you know you know when I was running a machine learning team, I had sort of mixed feelings about Kubernetes because it is also complex to run. Um, I, think I think we AWS, all do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Jillian uh, a couple weeks ago talked about uh, AWS Batch, and, and we've got a lot of good use out of AWS Batch. We had a, a couple of production services that were running in AWS Batch. Um, so I think there's sort of like different levels, I guess, of of how how um, how low level do you want to go on on operating the system? But um, but I think the the key there really is Docker, in my opinion, because um, you know all of a sudden you've got a unit that can be deployed in a wide range of, of environments very easily, um, and it gives you sort of like a common common medium across across different projects and and different tools. Are you finding any like Docker, I suppose, toolchain sets that are um, building maybe kind of here are some really common use cases for deploying machine learning environments. I'm starting to see that quite a bit, I suppose, more in the data science and DevOps space where, for example, I have not built a base image for Jupyter <laughs> yes. in like a couple in like a couple yeah. years now because they have they have those. They're ready. They're available. I just always totally. build on those. And yep. now we have the Pangeo project, which I totally stole, and I'm building a whole bunch of bioinformatics images on those. <laughs> yeah. Like I just don't, I don't really build base Docker images anymore. I go find somebody else who did yeah, a good totally. job for the thing that I'm doing. Yeah. Totally, I agree. And uh, one, a set of images we used a lot as base images were NVIDIA's got a whole, um, a whole hub now with sort of base PyTorch image, base DeepStream image. Um, and, and yeah, that, that like takes care of all the NVIDIA drivers and, and all the stuff that I'd never want to think about. Um, and then one of the other things we did was we would have sort of like next level is like not a base image at this point, but sort of next level base image. Uh, we'd have multiple of them. So we'd have um, one with development dependencies, and then we've got a separate one that, that just strips some of those out. Like we used, uh, I like to use black for, for Python formatting. And I don't necessarily want to include that in my production image, but I can just swap in my sort of development base image versus my production base image, and the rest of it is is all unified. Um, yeah, that, that's where I think my, my recommendation on development and production should look as close as possible. Is not they should literally be the same. It's it's like make make them as close as sort of like reasonable. Um, and I do think all these are kind of judgment calls. Like, um, yeah, yeah, you you, you want to sort of like understand generally what are the patterns that work well and then you want to actually make a decision on your on your actual use case i had a feeling you'd you'd like black i i, I like black as <laughs> yeah. well you know it's yeah just like i don't have to think about it yeah just, yeah yep. and i i, I could turn yeah. on auto uh auto format on save and vs code mm -hmm. and then i i never have to think about it yep. at all. <laughs> yeah i love that um so you you've talked about a lot of Great, surmounting a lot of obstacles, but I, I'm interested also in like sort of what are some of the the outstanding 
pain points and the things where we still kind of have have a ways to go with with doing this and um yeah i mean it, it sounds like you've you've had to, to learn a lot and you're you're kind of like a, a savant across the board you kind of know know that the, the the, the domain about the actual machine learning algorithms and you also know a lot about the actual infrastructure um, and, and but I imagine that's that's a lot for a lot of people to take in but but just 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 in general what are some of the, the big pain points uh, that sort of are still outstanding and that still have to have to go for for de deploying ml yeah so I, I think there there are a lot and I I definitely have uh, some experience thinking about them but I, I that's not to say that um, that it that I look, I'm an expert in any of it. I think, I think basically there are major open questions still in the sort of ML ops space broadly defined. Um, I think one of the bigger ones and one I'm kind of excited to work on with, with iterative when I join is remote execution um, of, of machine learning pipelines and experiments and training jobs. I think um, today it's, it's still the case for at least, at least in the computer vision, you know, you, you all know more about your domains than I do. Um, but it's still the case that if if you want to scale your compute, you have to have a pretty good understanding of AWS or GCP or Azure. And I think, um, in principle, there's no reason why that shouldn't be abstracted away. You know, if, if I'm a data scientist, I want to write my Python package to build my machine learning model, and I want to you know add a flag so that it just runs remotely on a on a uh, GPU machine in AWS. I don't want to be an expert in IAM roles and networking and EC2 instances and um, you know the um, the storage on the device. I, I just um, I I, I want to be good at writing code and I, I do think I do think more and more machine learning is an engineering problem. But that doesn't mean I want to be an expert in every single part of the stack. I want to I want to understand the application that I'm building and I don't want to be yeah I, I don't want to be an expert in the rest of it. So I think. Uh, I think making that easier so that a machine learning engineer can focus more on machine learning and less on infrastructure is is a sort of like important uh, next step for for the space. Um, and then I, I like I hope open source wins. I think the um, there are there are good proprietary tools out there, but um, but then then you sort of like get locked in. Your your team picks one, and then you go to another company. You can't can't use it anymore. Um, Mm. Yeah, so so that's that's sort of like what I'm betting on, I guess. I want to take a moment here for some shameless self-promotion. I just want to know <laughs> that I'm trying to have you covered on the infrastructure side. BioDeploy will deploy yes. all the HPC and Kubernetes clusters and bootstrap <laughs> roles and all of those kind of things. And uh, I will link to the GitHub org below with you know with all the Terraform recipes. I think that's ideal. And then that's my plug for this week. No, I, I think that's great. And like, I, I do think Terraform is an important sort of part of the answer there going forward. Is like, now all of a sudden I don't have to care that much about AWS specifically as long as I understand the, the Terraform config language and I know how to look up the, the Terraform docs. Um, so yeah, I don't I even know. I don't even expect for my scientists <laughs> to do that. I actually, I'm a really big fan of putting Terraform recipes and wrapping them in cookie cutter because the thing that go. I like about cookie yeah. cutter is that it builds the interactive CLI for you. So like you can have like if else statements, do you need this? Do you need this? Do you need this? And you can really kind of like guide, guide your user through that. Yeah, I think if, if my users, if my scientists have to know that like a pod is a thing, I'm not doing my job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I think I think basically like that's going to get solved over the next few years. And I think that's going to make 
data science machine learning teams much more efficient. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I noticed a parallel between, you know, with, with, with Python, you, you're able to wrap stuff and so that, that has some modularity so you can import the thing that someone already made. And then we also just discussed, you know, Dylan was saying like, even even Docker now, like I'm not gonna build a Docker image, I'm just gonna like build yeah, off totally. of the Jupyter Hub base image. So I can see this, like let's just build off of like a base like Terraform recipe and like I just, you know, that's, that's it. Um, Another another thing I just I just thought of this is sort of speculative and maybe fanciful and, and silly, but um, the way you were talking Ben about about all these different things knobs you need to turn about AWS, I'm wondering if, if people have done or this is silly like essentially ML on the ML infrastructure like like like, <laughs> yes. like, like, like hyper parameter yes. tuning. I'm like like okay okay it's so meta for, for yeah. this for this, for this yeah. thing. You know, you know AWS gonna, is like, getting there. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. getting there because now they have, we don't just have the horizontal pod autoscaler, there's also a vertical pod autoscaler. And what it does is it's meant to sit there and dynamically scale your, um, scale your containers up or down based on what it needs. And it's still, like, I haven't dug into it too much, but I mean, it must be doing something at least a little bit predictive, right? Because I don't know. Or, like, I'm wondering, like, is it just looking at the you know, the timestamp, like right now, how much CPU are you using? Or maybe over the last hour, how much have you been using? And you requested a million, but you're only using a hundred. Let's scale yeah. this down for you. Or is it like, can it actually get a little bit smarter than that? Can you like maybe tag your jobs and say, this is an ML job with this type of data set and it will get a bit smarter. That's a great idea. I don't know, but that would be neat if it did that. Yeah, very cool. I also think like besides autoscaling, uh, like the spot markets or which instance type should I spin up at any given time? I, I think, I, yeah, mm. I love it. We should start a company. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the the batch um, the batch spot instances are really nice because they actually use a different algorithm to select them. So it's something like less than it's less than ninety five now of your job. Or so if you so say you submit a hundred jobs and you're using a spot scheduler. Um, like at least 95% of them will complete, or at least 95 of those jobs will complete. Your spot instance won't get interrupted, nothing. And it's something like less than five because they're choosing from like very deep down in the spot pool or something like that. So yeah, I think I think ML, the M, what are we gonna call it? ML ops for infrastructure? Yeah. 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 ML, the ML, ML squared ops, ML ops yeah. squared. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We'll come up with something um, good. Uh, okay, well, we're, we're about running on time, but um, Ben, is there anything else you'd like to sort of leave us with as, as, as we close out? It's, it's been wondering, wonderful having you as, as our, our guest host. Um, and just, yeah, anything you'd like to, to close us out with? Okay, yeah, not much. I guess I'll just say um, my view is doing machine learning well in production requires some knowledge of math and algorithms still, but it also requires some knowledge of engineering and, and don't neglect the engineering. I think uh, to build good systems, you have to think about the engineering piece of it. And uh, Yeah, hopefully we can keep getting better at it. Great. <clears throat> great, fantastic. Okay, um, well, uh, this was a great episode and uh, we'll see you all next week. Um, send us feedback by any, any channels you can. Um, thank you. All right. Uh, heading out now. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody.